it's the next level. There was a camp not far from here, just across the lake. It was called Camp Blackfoot. No one goes there anymore. Everything burnt down. There's nothing left except the ruins. Now this camp had a caretaker, a really evil bastard. And his name was Cropsy. Everyone hated Cropsy. For a start, he was a drunk. Two bottles of whiskey a day, no problem. Like, most of the time, he's somewhere out in space. But if he caught you, look out. Because Cropsy could strip the paint off the walls just by breathing on them. <laughs> now, this Cropsy was a sadist. I mean, he got real pleasure out of hurting people, scaring them. And he had these garden shears, you know? The kind with long, thin blades. He carried them all the time, wherever he went. And he had this kind of demonic way of looking at you. One time, this Cropsy really went after this kid from Brooklyn. Followed him around night and day. He made this kid's life living hell. But this time, he chose the wrong guy. Because the kid and some of his buddies had planned a little prank that would scare the living shit out of Cropsy. Only problem was, the gag went wrong. The next thing anyone knows, Cropsy's trapped alive and burning in his bunk. They try to get him out, but the fire's so fierce they can't reach him. All they can do is stand outside and listen to him cry out in agony. They say he smashed his way through the bunk room door, just a mass of flames. And as he screamed out, burned alive, he cried out, I will return! I will have my revenge! They never found his body. Do you ever fantasize about being killed? Do you ever wonder about all the different ways of dying, you know, violently? I wonder, like, what would be the most horrible way to die? Well, hello, Mr. Fancy. Violent content. Parental discretion is advised. So, when it comes to sequels, are they really as bad as we think they are? Or could it be that we are just our own worst enemy? I mean, expectations, am I right? We go into a sequel having known how much that first movie or book or even music album like how, how awesome it was. And then the follow-up is released upon the masses and we expect it to be something. We have this prem- we have this preconceived notion what we want. What if we didn't expect anything? 
What if instead we went in with an open mind and just allowed the second attempt to have the same privilege the premiere experience had? Would we really be as hard on that sequel then? You know, if we just allowed it to have its own day in court without the expectation that it will equal the same height the first one achieved? I'm Postmortem Paul, and it's my gruesome pleasure to welcome you back to the Next Level Network and Studio Zero production of What Lurks Behind Behind Podcast Podcast Zero. Zero. And before I do a deep dive into the the world of Jason Alexander before he became everyone's favorite bad luck recipient on the sitcom Seinfeld, I wanted to talk about a certain anthology that recently had its second go-around. Yes, uh, Netflix. On May 14th, was it? No. Uh, May 13th, I think. I can't remember. No, it was May 14th. I'm right. Uh, Love, Death, and Robots Volume 2 was released through Netflix. And I, I watched the first one when it was released way back when. Absolutely loved it. And this is what? This is almost two years later that we're getting Volume 2, Season 2, whatever you want to call it. So I decided to check it out. Now, it's, um, it's a shorter season than the first one was, or a shorter volume, whatever you want to call it. Um, this time around, it's only eight episodes. And also, I might add that it's... The first time around, the big, the big selling point was it was NSFW, not safe for work, you know? And it was, it was edgy, it was, it was vulgar, it was very adult. This time around, it's a lot less of that. It's a lot less of, hey, look at us, we're all offensive, you know, and we're edgy and, you know, we're going to offend people. Like, it wasn't that. Um, it was more mature this time around. Still not bad. Um, four, okay, it's eight episodes. Four of them really stood out to me. Which included the, uh, the episodes, I guess you would call them, or short stories, whatever. Um, Snow in the Desert, Pop Squad, Ice, which was beautifully animated, and Life Hutch. Life Hutch, eh, I saw some people really liked it, some people didn't. I personally liked it. Um, there's not enough backstory to it, but I still liked what we got. I mean, I, I keep in mind these... I think the longest episode, if you want to call it that, I think was like 15 minutes long. They're they're very short films. Um, three of them that are really solid, like all aside from those top four, those were my favorite four. And then there was automated customer service, which was kind of goofy and funny, but had like a pretty dark message at the same time to it. Um, the tall grass and the drowned giant, which was really I kind of didn't know what to make of it, but it kept me intrigued nonetheless. And then, of course, the final one of the eight eight episodes, um, All Through the House, which is basically a Christmas-themed animation, but gives you a completely different version of Santa Claus. Uh, (laughs) And it was kind of cool, actually. Now, I mean, so I watched the eight episodes... I enjoyed it for what it was. I guess it's because I didn't watch any trailers. I didn't expect anything. I went into it thinking, okay, 
it's going to be first off right right off the bat i noticed it was eight episodes so i'm like okay it's shorter than the first time around which kind of makes sense living in this whole stupid pandemic world where everything seems like it was put on hold or cut in half i mean i'm kind of thinking that's more than likely the reason why we didn't get you know another 18 episodes instead we only get eight but anyways I, I watched these eight episodes whatever and then of course you know because i'm always curious i take to the internet and i'm like let's see what everybody else thought and reviewers online or what i like to call whiners these days uh, seem to despise the second season But see, here's the thing. This is what I liked about this this second outing from Love, Death, and Robots was the fact that it's not all adult and in-your-face vulgar. Not so much with the, the whole nudity thing and, and it doesn't have to, you know, have all this swearing and stuff like that. It just told stories. Um, and it was like natural storytelling. There was some intrigue behind the stories and whatnot. Like I said, like the Drowned Giant, I'm kind of watching that one going, fuck is this about? But at the same time, it was intriguing enough to keep me watching. Um, I mean, I, I'm not going to lie. I'm like probably everybody else. The, the first volume, the first season, whatever you want to call it, is easily an A+. It's top of the crop. It's a 10 out of 10. It, 18 episodes that even the lackluster ones were still awesome. And this second time around, yeah, it's about an A minus, B plus. You know, it, it's in that average ballpark, but you got to keep in mind, like I said, pandemic world, so half the season's probably missing. I think that's the guaranteed season three we're getting, is probably the other half of the episodes. And the, the, the whole thing is also is going back to what I said about expectations. Myself, personally, I think I enjoyed it more because I didn't watch the trailers. I didn't go into it expecting anything, but so many people did. I think a lot of bad reviews for sequels and for movies and whatnot come from expectations. You know, Godzilla vs. Kong was another one. People had expectations, and then when they got it, it was like... I mean, primarily most people enjoyed it for what it was, but there were some people... There were some viewers of that film that were like, yeah, this sucked. Mortal Kombat, another another prime example of that. Even going back to as far as like Batman versus Superman, everybody wanted a specific type of Batman and a specific type of Superman, and when they didn't get that, well, this movie sucks. And I think sometimes that the reason why sequels or movies, it doesn't even have to be sequels all the time, just specific movies. I think people go in with a set mind, like a, like a, a set frame of mind. And when they don't get it, it's like, well, this sucks. And, I mean, to be fair, when it comes to sequels, not every sequel can be Aliens or Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. <laughs> Speaking of, just watched that earlier this morning. Um, kind of weird. I didn't realize that today was also Dennis Hopper's birthday. And I just, last night was on a whim, I'm like, or this, early this morning, whatever you want to call it. I was on a whim, I was like, hmm. What movie marathon? I've been theming my marathons lately, and I was like, what theme do I want to go with this time? And I was like, you know what? Let's do Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and then we'll follow it right up with the sequel. 
Um, and I mean, here's the thing. Again, sequels, right? Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is kind of interesting for me because I actually... I know blasphemy that I'm about to say this, but I actually enjoy this one a little bit more than the original. And I do love that original film. I know some people have complained, Sally Hardesty's crying too much at the end of that movie. I I agree with that, and I tend to disagree with it as well. I'm not in that situation that Sally Hardesty is in. That probably is one of the most terrifying fucking moments of her whole entire life and if her only reaction is to scream because she's tied to a chair she can't do anything she can't get away and here's these fucking weirdos like that she thinks in about five minutes time they might gut her alive and try and eat her intestines i mean i don't know i might scream a lot too i it's a real tough call because i get it at the same time why people are like i can't watch this like it's true. Like, your ears can only take so much, and the chick's got a set of lungs on her. But I don't know. I still really appreciate that first film. Then along comes the sequel, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, in 1986, with pretty much, you know, a very young Bill Mosley. I mean, I think he had one film before this, and it wasn't even like within the top 10 casting like roles it was like basically his foot in the door into hollywood then he comes out with this and does chop top and i mean bill mosley god he's like a god amongst men in this film his delivery of his lines his the whole movie he's sitting there with that fucking coat hanger scraping his little plate and eating the skin and stuff and it's just like at one point your stomach's turning and at the same time you're laughing your ass off because it's like god he's like nailing this and then dennis hopper like obviously one of his better films i'm looking at you koopa but no (laughs) because god damn that super mario brothers movie but i mean it's kind of weird because when i watched texas chainsaw massacre 2 again it was one of those movies that when i approached it I expected something from it. Luckily, I walked away from that one loving it more than I did hating it. I mean, to be fair, I mean, the the opening scene where, you know, they're fucking with those two guys on the bridge and whatnot. And just, I guess what I'm trying to say is, is that it, when I approached that one, when I, it, Aliens is, kind of different because i did have expectations when i went into that as a matter of fact i'll be the first one to be honest and admit right here that yes i go into a lot of a lot of sequels with expectations myself um but texas chainsaw massacre 2 was one of those that i didn't for some reason and i'm glad i didn't love death and robots same thing didn't watch trailers didn't know what i was getting into and just allowed it to do what it was supposed to do and i walked away from it barely satisfied and I think to wrap this all up, when it comes to just films in general, not even just sequels, but just films in general, books, movie, uh, music, sorry, uh, you know, your favorite band releases a new album. Treat it like it's its own thing. Let's stop having expectations because I think that's what's leading to a lot of the sour reviews we get and the sour comments and the bullshit that we constantly read online that infuriates those of us that enjoy these things. This week on Shudder, there were 
it's finally coming. Psycho Goreman is going to get its streaming debut. And I'm kind of looking forward to watching it again because that first time around when I watched it, I did that thing. I had expectations of what I expected it to be. And when it didn't meet up to those expectations, I was like, the fuck am I watching? I'm kind of looking forward to now just sitting back, letting the story tell itself and see how I feel about it. Because, I mean, it's to be fair, I mean, a lot of people love that movie that have already seen it. And I'm still sitting here going, did I miss something? But I think, as I'm saying this about everybody else, I'm going to say it about myself as well. We need to stop having expectations. Just let the stories tell themselves. And I might also add that, you know, May 17th, not only is it Dennis Hopper's birthday, but it's Bill Paxton's birthday and Trent Reznor's birthday. That's a whole lot of my teenage influence right there. And speaking of teenage years, so episode 94, main focus this week is on the cult hit film, The Burning. A 1981 slasher flick about teenagers at a campground, getting offed one by one, or at one point, a whole lot of death all at once, by a really pissed off caretaker who was burned alive because the head he got was not the head he wanted. At a time when the slasher genre was the big to-do on every studio's list, and the Weinsteins themselves just had to get in on all that action. I mean, along comes this week's fan request and review of the week. The Burning. So, we're going to sit back to the trailer timeout... And when we return, our shared Deadcast experience will bring us back to those better days. You know, those days of bullying and porno magazines and outdoor showers for the girls and pellet guns for the boys. And a pre-Costanza Jason Alexander, too. Mm-hmm. He's actually cool. When we return, we will go back to 1981 for the burning. Back in a slash, kids. This summer, if you're planning to go camping, don't. If you're looking forward to midnight swims, don't. Listen, you going back to the campsite. Get some matches. Build us a hot fire. And if you're thinking about being with someone when no one can see you, don't. Because this summer, a legend of terror isn't just a campfire story anymore. They say he smashed his way through the bunk room door in just a mass of flames. Burned alive, he cried out, I will return! I will have my revenge! He lives on whatever he can catch. Right now, he's out there, watching, waiting. Who's there? What happened one summer five years ago is about to happen again, and again, and again. Just two quick things before we get into this week's review of The Burning. 
one to the Canadian listeners. If you have a VPN, turn that thing on and go check out Pluto TV. See, here in Canada, we have Pluto TV as well online, but it's what we have like eight channels. <laughs> we have nothing. I threw a VPN on the other day and decided to check out the U.S. version of Pluto, which I watched before. They have a great channel on there for just the Adams Family, uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000. Uh, what else is on there? Fuck. They've got like a whole bunch of different sports ones and movies ones. There's a, a specific channel all for horror movies. And then there's one that's all terror and then one that's all thrillers. They've got a lot of great channels on there. But I recently discovered the on-demand function on there. And wow, like all these movies for free. Okay, so yeah, there's commercials. Big fucking deal. So what? They have all three sleepaway camps. Well, the three that matter. I know there's part four, but whatever. They have the three that matter. Um, what else did I see on there? Uh, Diary of the Dead, if, if you like that movie. I personally do like all of the Romero zombie movies, even Land and Diary, so whatever. That's on there. The two stepfather films that matter are on there. Pumpkinhead's on there. Like the The selection was like wild. I was like, Holy shit, this is like really cool. Uh, Sleepwalkers, Stephen King movie. I was, I actually like, that was the movie I tested because I was like, all right, how does this work? Like I clicked on the movie and you can watch the full movie. It has the rare commercial break here and there. But it's just like when, when you were a kid growing up watching like, if you're in the Windsor area, that is, you watch Channel 50 and you watched, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street. You saw the movie with commercials. Granted, a lot of the gore was edited out too, where these movies are unedited. But I was like, wow, this is like fucking awesome. It's basically like Tubi, but it's Pluto TV, and they have a great selection of movies, especially if you like 80s and 70s horror. There's a ton of it on there, and there's even some like recent new ones on there. Um, so yeah, I wanted to mention that. Secondly, the other thing I wanted to mention is, is recently I've come to discover that the audience for this show spans far and wide. Um, I have listeners for this show that are in Spain, in the United Kingdom, uh, Australia, <laughs> United States, and Canada. I mean, it, it's really cool to know that this show is actually branching out. So to all of you who tune in week after week or even just, you know, for your favorite film reviews or whatever, thank you. It's totally awesome. I just recently discovered that. I was like, wow, there's like people listening to this in Spain. That was really cool. I know I have the worst attitude for a Canadian ever, but it is what it is. Okay, on to the burning, uh, which I did say is a fan request. Um, a friend of mine and a fan of the show, Jacob, a long time ago, I'd say probably about a good six months ago, we were talking about episodes for the show and whatnot, and he actually requested this movie. I never forgot that. It just took me a while to get to it and whatnot. And finally, I had my chance to do it. And I was like, you know what? The warmer weather's coming. This is a perfect time to start doing, you know, uh, or to at least do a movie that takes place in a campground. Because, you know, in other parts of the world that aren't Canada, you know, campgrounds are starting to open. Um, (laughs) Here in Canada, we're still in lockdown. But, um, yeah, so campgrounds are opening now and you know 
I could have done Sleepaway Camp or fr- another Friday the 13th movie and whatnot. And trust me, those are coming. But I was like, you know what? The Burning is one that sort of goes under the radar at times. And it really shouldn't. So, on to The Burning, which the movie was released in North America May 8th, 1981, not 91. Jesus, Paul, get with it. The movie was directed by Tony Malum, and he's known primarily for work on documentaries. He did a lot of documentary work. But he also did the TV film The Sins of Dorian Gray that um, starred Anthony Perkins. And he directed the film Split Second with Rutger Hauer. Um, Split Second, most people like it. There's the odd few out there that are like, "Eh, this movie's not good. It's Rutger Hauer. What more do you fucking need? (laughs) But that's me anyways. Um, The film... So this is going to be a bit of a touchy subject that I have to watch how I walk around this one. Anyways, the film was created by Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, we know the Weinsteins. Uh, it was written by Harvey Weinstein, Tony Malin, and Brad Gray, and the screenplay was done by Bob Lawrence, or sorry, Peter Lawrence and Bob Weinstein. So the Weinsteins, yeah, they're everyone's favorite people in Hollywood. Um, but yeah, so they have a lot to do with this film. Uh, to be fair, yes, I know the controversies behind the Weinsteins, but at the same time, how many great movies came out of those two guys? But anyways, this is what it is. Produced by Michael Cole, Andre Giao, I think I'm pronouncing his last name right, uh, Daniel Ubod, Gene Ubod, and Harvey Weinstein. And I should say that this, technically, this film right here, The Burning, is essentially the beginning of the Miramax era. You think about anything that was Miramax, that was the Weinsteins. I know about the controversies, and I don't really care to get into them about the Weinsteins. I want to focus on the movie because the thing is, is and I'm going to quickly just sidetrack off for a second here. I understand there's a lot of shit that goes on in Hollywood. Hollywood's a shitty place. We know this, but they make movies. And the movies are the movies that entertain us. And there's a lot of good people involved in these movies that I want to focus and put my highlights on. Specifically, in this case, the special effects guy, Tom Savini. But the thing is, is that I am well aware of the fact of what comes with the Weinstein name. Let's forget about that. Let's focus on the movie, the actors, the special effects, the stunts guys, the editor, and the music, and all the other great stuff that comes with this movie, and not focus on the shit. Okay? Moving on to... (laughs) The special effects by Tom Savini. Uh, who's that? Who? Savini who? Um, did you know that Savini turned down the chance? Okay, so Tom Savini did Friday the 13th Part 1. Or Friday the 13th. He did the very first film. He had a chance to do the second one. And he turned it down to do this film. And it's kind of funny if you watch the extras on the Blu-ray or the DVD for The Burning. Um, it's kind of funny because... You don't realize what he's doing at first. He's he's telling you what went on in his mind at the time when he was offered Friday the 13th Part 2, but it sounds like he's, like, dissing the the franchise because he's like, Jason, Jason can't come back. Who the fuck would watch a movie with Jason? This and, that? and you're like, what the hell? Like, dude, you did how many of the Jason... You did at least two of them that I know of. And it's like, you know, the Jason movies, like, helped 
escalate your career, but it's because when he was approached with it, he didn't understand how they were going to bring Jason into the second film. He's like, Jason didn't technically exist in the first film. He was dead. And so when it came time to picking between basically Friday the 13th Part 2 or The Burning, he chose to go with The Burning instead because to him it made more sense at that time. Like he says, he then returned to, you know, Friday 4 and, you know... He's like, I like the one part where he basically joked about, he's like, yeah, we'll be in like, you know, like Friday the 13th part 2004 and stuff like that. Like, you know, Jason is always going to come back somehow or another, except when legal problems start to happen. And now we're sitting here waiting for the next fucking film. But anyways, so he passed on Friday the 13th part two, took on this gig so he could kill the teens that are in the burning instead of the teens in Friday the 13th part two. The stunts done in this film were done by a man by the name of Reed Rondell. Now, Reed, um, for those of you familiar with the burning, there's the scene where we see Cropsey come running out of the the, uh, the cabin after he's been burned alive and whatnot, and he's got flames all over him and stuff like that. Reed Rondell was that guy. He was the guy in the suit. He, and if you look really closely, yes, you can see that Cropsey's burning and he's wearing a helmet. Um, <laughs> it's part of the stunt look past it whatever it's just it's there the really sad thing about reed is that after doing this film he was brought on to do work for the show airwolf and it was during that time that he died in a helicopter accident so sort of a sad little note that comes with that but i mean if it wasn't for reed we don't have cropsy burning to death or well burning alive i should say because technically doesn't die (laughs) um the editing for the film was done by jack shoulder and if you're familiar with that name you know that he went on to direct a certain polarizing yet cult classic in the nightmare on elm street 2 freddy's revenge he also did the movie the hidden i'll add that one as well but interesting that jack shoulder is the editor on this film and you know, not too far off in the distant future, he decides, you know, he's going to take on directing and he does Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2 and completely change the Freddy rules. And also, in my opinion, gave us the creepiest of all the Freddies because after Part 2, I mean, no offense to Robert Englund, God, man did amazing work with Freddy, but they started to make Freddy a comic book character and, you know, he's sort of like cartoony and... You know, one-liners and whatnot. Not that he didn't have those in the first two films, but they really went with the lighter tone after that. And by the time they hit, you know, Freddy's dead. I mean, he was just literally a joke in himself. So, but, yeah, editing done by Jack Shoulder. The music for this film was done by Rick Wakeman. And if you're familiar with the name, then you know that he was also the keyboardist of the band Yes. Um, I might also mention that in the same year that he did the Burning soundtrack, he also released a solo album by the title of 1984. It was an album that was inspired by the George Orwell book of the same name. Um, he also did many other soundtracks as well, uh, some video games and some other films and whatnot. The one that stood out to me, though, was, and I've seen this movie was the Phantom of the Opera that he did, which was the 1925 version, but he rescored it. And I did actually see that on VHS way back in the day. 
So I thought that was kind of cool because I'd forgotten about that, and now I kind of wish I could find it again. But anyways, he's done that. Um, our starring cast... A lot of actors and actresses in this movie, so I tried to narrow it down to basically the ones that stand out. Starring with, or starting with, I should say. Starring, starting, same thing. Uh, Brian Matthews as Todd. Really didn't have much of a big career. I did some TV work and whatnot, but he's basically the lead role. I guess, let's face it, the lead role in this movie is Cropsy, but in terms of the teenagers and whatnot, Todd is like sort of like the lead, like camp counselor or whatever, and he's played by Brian Matthews. Um, I'm going to try and say her name properly. Leah Aries as Michelle, uh, primarily a TV actress, but she was also in the film Bloodsport with Jean-Claude Van Damme, and she did an episode of Freddy's Nightmares. Which there's been some discussion about Freddy's Nightmares I've seen online recently. <sighs> Nothing that tells me that they will, you know, release a DVD or Blu-ray of it, but it would be nice. Being I was a fan of that show and I'm stuck with really bad resolution downloads just like now the episodes. Kind of sucks. Moving on. <laughs> Brian Backer as Alfred. Alfred is kind of like our our kid in this movie that's like, you know, he gets picked on and whatnot. Anyways, he was also in films like Fast Times at Ridgemont High and Police Academy 4. Lou David as Cropsy. And Lou was also in films like The Exterminator and The Last Dragon. Moving on to Larry Joshua as Glazer. Glazer is like our bully. He's that asshole, you know, who keeps picking on Alfred and whatnot because Alfred's got a thing for Sally and, you know... Glazer is in love with Sally and he insists he's going to get into Sally's pants and whatnot. Anyways, Larry Joshua was mainly a character actor, uh, but one thing that did stand out was he was the wrestling promoter in Sam Raimi's Spider-Man movie, uh, the one from 2002. Well, it was filmed in 2001, but due to what happened in 9-11, it got pushed back and it cut out the World Trade Center scenes and whatnot. So anyways... He was in that movie. Um, Dave. Dave. The character of Dave in this film was played by the one, the only, Jason Alexander. Yes. George Costanza is in this movie with a full head of hair, I might add. And Jason Alexander has 144 acting credits. It's kind of funny because I didn't realize he had been in so much because I've always known him as... George Costanza, but actually he's been in a lot of shit. And he's done a lot of voice acting as well. Um, but things that stood out to me, he was in the movie Jacob's Ladder, which I totally did not remember that. So now I want to go back and watch Jacob's Ladder because it's like back then when it came out, I didn't really pay attention. And well, I thought I would mention this just for the shits and giggles of, you know, the laugh of it all. He was also in the Nickelback video for the song Trying Not to Love You. Um, yeah. Look, if you're a Nickelback fan, I'm not going to laugh at you, but I, you know, I've always wondered why did Nickelback become such a, a, a butt for jokes? Like, I really get kicked around for just being a band. I don't, I don't know. I don't get it. 
I never personally like really like hated the band. They're not one of my favorites, but I didn't get why everyone hated them so much. But anyways, whatever. It is what it is. Moving on to Ned Eisenberg as Eddie. Eddie is our rapey douchebag in this movie. You know, he's going to bring his girlfriend out to the, the pond. And then when she, you know, just basically says, look, I just want to swim. He treats her like absolute shit. Yeah, you asshole. One of the few characters that when he gets killed, it's like, you had it coming. But anyway, <laughs> he was also in the uh, movie The Exterminator, which uh, I am going to mention also The Exterminator. I mentioned it earlier for uh, Lou David as well. The Exterminator is a film that stars Christopher George, who was in movies like Graduation Day, City of the Living Dead, and Pieces. Um, Pieces is coming. I'm letting you know that now. I'm spoiling that, that there will be an episode in the near future where I review Pieces. Because it's a goddamn treasure. But, um, yeah, the, the movie The Exterminator, it, Ned Eisenberg and Lou David were both in it, and it also stars uh, Christopher George. Carrot Glenn as Sally. Now, okay, with the exception of two other names that I have to mention, a lot of these actors, well, specifically the actresses, really, um, four roles, maybe five, none that were really big. This is like their big to-do movie, and it kind of stops there. Carrot Glenn is one of those, um, one of those actresses. She plays the role of Sally. Our shower girl, you know, outdoor showers. Yes, I, it, this movie kills me. Like, outdoor showers, okay, I understand that at campgrounds they have, like, showers, you know, for people and whatnot. But wouldn't you put a roof on that? Like, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I haven't been to enough ca campgrounds to know that they actually had those. I don't know. Because um, every campground I ever went to, the showers had a roof on them. Anyways, yes, uh, she was in a total of four roles. Um, and none that were really, this is her big one. Um, and then she gave up acting in 1982 and never returned to it. Um, the next actress I'll be talking about, Carolyn Houlihan as Karen. She was Miss Ohio in 1979. She's a very attractive girl. Um, she did this film and she did another film called A Little Sex that starred Tim Matheson and Kate Capshaw. And that was it. Two roles. End of story. Now, the next two names I'm going to mention are big names. Um, much like Jason Alexander, who this was pretty much his first role. These next two names, this was also their first roles that would start them off into great careers. Fisher Stevens as Woodstock. And The Burning was, like I said, his first feature film appearance. Uh, Fisher would go on to do movies like The Flamingo Kid with Matt Dillon. And oh, Bronson Pinchot was in that too. Balky from Perfect Strangers. Yeah, he was in that too. Um, but Fisher Stevens, a lot of people know him for two films that came out in the 80s. Short Circuit and Short Circuit 2. Yes, he played the character Ben. Uh, he was also in the Super Mario Brothers movie. I only mentioned that because I talked about Dennis Hopper earlier. Really cool thing, though, about Fisher Stevens. He was also, and I remember seeing this, too, and I was like, is that the same guy? He was the executive producer for the 2008 film The Midnight Meat Train, which is based on the Clive Barker story. Yeah. Um, Bradley Cooper's in that movie as well. 
Um, so yeah, it, he was the executive producer for that. And I remember seeing his name in the credits and I was like, is that the same guy? Yeah, it is actually. Um, moving on to Holly Hunter as Sophie. Um, Holly is, uh, she's a minor role in this. This was, again, the burning was her first acting gig. Um, and then of course she would go on to do movies like Raising Arizona, David Cronenberg's Crash. A Life Less Ordinary, that's the film with um, Ewan McGregor. Uh, Danny Boyle directed that one. She was in Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice. And to those who are animation enthusiasts, uh, she's quite well known as Elastic Girl from the Incredibles films and all the related roles. You know, uh, there's the different video games and whatnot where Elastic Girl has been in them. She's done the voice for that the other actresses i'm just going to quickly mention but like i said one two roles maybe that were big and that was it um shelly bruce is the character of tiger uh sarah Shodoff as barbara bonnie Dorosky as marnie and kibi kendall as diane and they all you know one two acting credits and then disappeared into the sunset and never returned to acting so as much as the cool thing about the burning is is it was the jump start for great names like jason alexander and holly hunter and at the same time some of these actors and actresses this is their one their one and done shot so kind of cool the way that worked out the runtime for the film is an hour and 31 minutes it's rated R for sex and nudity, violence, gore, profanity, substance use, and frightening and intense scenes. The budget for the film was $1.5 million. The box office in North America, though, was only 708000 So only about half. However, the interesting thing is, is this movie is a huge success in Japan. In Japan, it raked in, listen to this, so $1.2 million in 11 theaters in 16 days. That's pretty fucking good. Um, so, I mean, and consider this. This is a low-budget slasher flick coming out at a time when slashers are the, you know, the, there's a, a dime a dozen, you know what I mean? Like, they're, they're just coming out from all sides. And this movie does that kind of success in Japan. It, kudos. And I mean, and then there was the UK release, which, I mean, it had some success, but eventually it would be put on a double bill with When a Stranger Calls, which is a great flick, by the way. And then finally it got pulled. All things considered, the film did earn its spendings back when you include what it made in Japan, but... It's kind of weird because the box office numbers for this movie, North American anyways, not so great. Yet with reviewers, like specific critics and whatnot, it's got very favorable reviews and today has a huge cult status. I mean, so much as to the point where it's part of the Scream Factory line of Blu-rays now. So it's pretty cool. Uh, moving on to the synopsis of the film... Basically, here's the story for this one. <clears throat> Let's clear my throat. On a moonlit evening many years ago, a group of young campers played a trick on Cropsy, the camp caretaker. The trick backfired, 
and Cropsy became a horribly disfigured maniac, a mutilated killer with a thirst for revenge. The Burning is the suspenseful, terrifying account of the demented Cropsy's return to summer camp and of the trail of blood he leaves in the dark woods. His sinister presence shadows the sunny, sexy fun of the campers, and Cropsy stalks his victims ruthlessly, pursuing his macabre revenge. Great performances, frightening special effects, and the specter of a crazed killer combined for a horror feature that's a spectacle of shocks. I almost said spectacular, and that kind of ruined the whole mood, but whatever. Moving on to the notes from Camp Stonewater. Um, yeah. So, history on this movie. The MPAA. Motion Picture, whatever the fuck they stand for. The idiots who sit there and go, this movie's rated R. Um, They did not approve of this movie. (laughs) The UK didn't approve of it much either, whether they're BBFC or whatever. Yeah, many cuts had to be made back in the era of this initial release. And this movie even became part of the dreaded video nasties list in the UK. It's kind of interesting because Tom Savini worked really hard on some of these special effects. And when it initially was released, they all got cut out. Now, we are lucky that we live in the era that we do of, you know, Blu-rays and unrated editions and, you know, restored footage and all that great stuff. You know, we're at we're at a point where like movies that came out in 1980 can have a 4K release and they look like they were released yesterday. So, I mean... We're lucky in the era we live in, but back in 1981, they weren't so lucky. Um, So much as, like, this is kind of an interesting story. So, the movie was released in the theaters in the UK. It didn't do so hot. Then they released it on VHS. The problem was, was that when they released the VHS originally, the Thorn EMI release, specifically, well, they accidentally released the uncut version. And it started a huge controversy. The uh, The film ended up with a huge recall. And I mean, it was to the point where if you were caught with in possession of the uncut film, it could lead to prosecution and fines and whatnot. Like, I mean, that's fucking brutal. <laughs> like, seriously, because you own a fucking movie. Um, yeah, you um, off to jail for six months. Wait, what? Um, the movie was banned um, in the UK. And, of course, and ended up on the video nasties list, which any any true horror film addict will tell you <laughs> that video nasties list was like our like our bucket list. It was like, oh, OK, that movie's on there. Watch that one. Watch that one. Watch it. I mean, because you're telling us not to watch it. Now we have to watch it. It's kind of like that whole like the, the mentality of. You want what you can't have, right? So tell the people they can't have this. Now they want it in flocks. Um, there are still original copies of that VHS tape that are still in existence somewhere in the world and apparently are worth a good chunk of money these days. I do not have it. I'm not even going to attempt to try because, no, I'm not paying 666 bucks for a VHS tape. <sighs> I love my VHS. Not that much. Um, 
Much of the gore had to be cut from this film, though. Uh, specifically, two scenes. Uh, the, the raft scene, which is where all the death happens all at once. And the prostitute murder, where she gets, like, the scissors in the gut and... Yeah, let's grind that around and watch the blood spew and whatnot. Yeah, so... Those two scenes specifically were cut pretty bad. Um, I also remember reading somewhere that, and this was a while back, that Glazer's death, when he gets the the garden shears in the neck and whatnot, and the, it's really cool, like how they showed the special effects, how they did that. But um, I remember reading that a few seconds of that were shaved off, so it didn't look so bad. Um, and I mean, some of those cuts, like you got to keep in mind. We didn't get to actually see the uncut version of this film, at least for, you know, the general public audience, whatnot, till 2007, when the unrated, uncut version was finally released on DVD for home purchase. Um, in some parts of the world, that uncut version did not come around till years later. I mean, what, 2007? You're talking about... What, 26 years later? Yeesh. But back to the beginning. I'll take it back a few steps back. So the Weinsteins, Herbie and Bob, wanted to cash in on the craze that was the slasher genre. And I mean, Friday the 13th, technically for the 80s, was the, the kickstart for that. I mean, Black Christmas, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Halloween, Psycho. Yeah, they started the trend in the 60s and 70s, but... Friday the 13th is probably the one that stands as, like, the 1980 start point. Um, so, you know, the Weinsteins, they collect their money up. They get, you know, 1.5 mil. And we're going to set out and we're going to make this film with Tony Malin directing their masterpiece. And for the effects, they get Tom Savini come in. Basically kill their teens and whatnot. Um, cool points to point out about Tom Savini. So... The scene in the movie where Cropsey is getting burned alive from getting the head that is not the head he wanted kind of thing. Uh, I always crack that joke. It's a cool looking skull though, like with, you know, the maggots and whatnot. It's on flames and it looks really awesome. Um, Savini's effects cannot be criticized in this movie. Yeah, sure. Okay. Some people will, but you're being an asshole because they're pretty masterful. But the part when Cropsey is burning... And we see the legs, and they're on flames, and they're they're kicking and whatnot. Those are actually Tom Sabini's legs. Those are not the actors, because he knew what he was doing. Um, he explains in the behind the scenes uh, interview with him that like he knew about like what to wear and what like what to apply on his legs so that the fire basically wouldn't like hurt him at all or whatnot. So he basically that's his legs we see there, and he was explaining like. When they were filming it, he basically kept kicking his legs and whatnot. And then when it was time to put the flames out, he would just cross his legs. And they show it. It looks really cool. It was really awesome how they did it. Um, in terms of Cropsey's look, the melted face. Um, Savini wasn't happy with that. He's made that very well known. Uh, he did it in three days. Now, I'm going to be honest with you right now. Me being a know-nothing kind of guy... Who just loves watching these movies I wouldn't know where to start in terms of making someone look like they were burned he does this in three days and 
for me, that's an achievement. Uh, yeah, okay, so Cropsey doesn't look like he's burned. He looks more like, you know, a toxic Avenger where his face is, like, kind of melted and whatnot. But whatever. For me, it works. I mean, you got, and like here, think about this for a moment. So he's doing the burning. This comes right at a time. Uh, prior to this, he does the movies Maniac and Eyes of a Stranger. Right after this, he does The Prowler. All of this in 1981. Like, he's basically on a fucking roll. Well, actually, A Maniac, I think, was 1980. I don't think it was 81. But Eyes of a Stranger and The Prowler come out the same year. And then a year later, he does Creepshow. Like, Savini's name was everywhere at the time. Like, he's... And what? And then in 85, we get, you know, Greg Nicotero and the whole KMB thing, you know catches on fire i'm going with that because i'm talking about the burning but you get what i'm saying like the 80s was a great time for special effects guys plus you had uh rob botine you had rick baker stan winston like this was a fucking great time to watch these movies because you had like creative fucking minds creating this shit you know now the the concept of the film the whole idea of the the cropsy killer and whatnot um is actually based on campfire story that was told back in the 80s back in the 70s whatever around the new jersey area um based on the the actual cropsy killers supposed like urban legend kind of thing and that story i mean even people still tell it even to this day uh in 2009 there was a documentary called cropsy um which was kind of weird because and i i i own the documentary it really doesn't focus so much on the Cropsy Maniac as it does like an actual true story about another killer. But whatever, it is what it is. But the whole idea of Cropsy and, you know, this burned maniac and whatnot, that was actually a, a story that got told at summer camps, which is kind of weird. You know, whenever I watch these, like, you know, these summer camp movies and whatnot, and you always see people sitting around a campfire telling stories. I don't know why, I guess, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I wouldn't find it scary. Like, I hear stories from people all the time, you know, about things that have gone bad or whatever, and you feel bad for people, maybe you get a little bit of the chills, but I I never understood the whole campfire story thing, but then again, I didn't go camping a lot when I was younger, so maybe that's why, I don't know, inexperience, right? So... Uh, in terms of the score, the music, whatnot, Rick Wakeman, okay, so the keyboardist from the band Yes, goes on to do the score for this. Um, he was, in terms of his payment for this, he was offered a percentage of, you know, whatever the profits would be. He turns around and says, no, 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 just give me a specific fee, I'll take my money and I'll go, here's your soundtrack. And then the movie ends up being extremely successful in Japan. He probably could have made a lot more money off this soundtrack. But it is what it is. Um, it's a cool soundtrack, not going to lie. It's got a cool electronic feel to it, you know, in the same vein as, you know, John Carpenter and Goblin and whatnot. Um, now, in terms of less trivia and more my thoughts on this. So when I'm watching this, here's my thing when I approach this film. I definitely get a feel for previous slasher films like that came out prior to this. And at the same time, I also see where films that later on came out 
may have borrowed from this. Um, so, for example, in terms of what came before, Cropsey, especially in the beginning of the film, Cropsey plays a lot of that cat and mouse stalking game. Like there, there's a lot of red herrings where it's like you think Cropsey is about to come out and kill, and then it's Todd, or you know, it's it's Eddie, or you know what I mean, and you're like, oh. I thought for sure this person was going to get fucking killed. The the part where Tiger, they're playing baseball. The girls are playing baseball and Tiger's going out to get the, the ball in the woods. And she keeps looking around. She's like, I know I'll find it. I'll know I'll find it. And you know that Cropsy is watching her and you think he's just about to kill her. And then she finds the ball and she runs away and nothing happens. Um, it's the whole cat and mouse thing. That is very much like Halloween. And this was what I said way back when I did my review for... Halloween 1978 versus 2018 that in the 2018 version we didn't have that cat and mouse feel to Michael Myers he just walked around killing people it was like there was no suspense to it this movie plays that very well it's very suspenseful in in the fact that especially in the first half of the film you keep thinking Cropsey's gonna kill and he doesn't and then he kills when you don't expect it so it was very well done. Um, the idea of it taking place at a camp where a horrible accident took place years before feels very Friday the 13th-ish. Now, according to the writers and according to Tom Savini, he also has followed this up. So supposedly this was created before Friday the 13th came out. The whole idea of the burning had already been put in place and was already written, and they were working on the script when Friday the 13th came out. Is that true or not? I don't know. I'm not going to sit here and tell you it's the truth or not. I wasn't there. Fuck, at 1980, I was five years old. <laughs> like, I don't fucking know. But supposedly that's the story. A lot of critics felt that this was a ripoff of Friday the 13th. Maybe the Weinsteins and, you know, the, maybe everyone involved was like, hey, look, we better say we made this before because if we don't, they're all going to call it a ripoff and blah, 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 whatever. Um, and I mean, the idea of a disfigured killer coming back, you know, for a prank gone bad, which is interesting because, okay, I get it. They, you know, they're a lot of people felt this was like Friday the 13th. I actually think of another film when I think of this one is Slaughter High. Where it was the whole prank went bad and then the killer came back later to get even kind of thing. Um, you could also compare this to Prom Night. You know, in Prom Night it opens up with the game that the kids are playing. And then the one kid, you know, there's a, there's the accident that happens. And one kid is killed. The other kid witnesses it. Comes back years later surviving and now ready to, you know, slaughter everyone that survived and stuff like So... And Prom Night was before this, came out in 1980. So, I mean, I, again, like, when I when I say that, like, you see where this movie is sort of in the middle of everything. It had, you know, it has its nods to what came out before, and it also, you know, has that appeal that films that came out later kind of borrowed from it um a specific scene that really stands out is glazer and sally having sex in the woods um totally reminds me of friday the 13th part five you know interestingly enough in that film the character of deborah Vor that deborah Voorhees played i know i gotta love her last name eh? and well okay in the movie she was credited as debbie sue but i mean 
her actual name was Deborah Voorhees. And the character she played in Friday Part 5 was Tina, which some people said her name Tina was a throwback to Nightmare on Elm Street. Whether or not that's true or not, I don't really know. But anyways, you think about her character. She gets killed by Large Garden, you know, or the head shears or whatever, after she had sex with her boyfriend. And that whole scene feels like it's a nod to the burning. Because in the burning, both Sally and Glazer fall victim to Cropsy's shears after having sex in the woods. So it's kind of cool. Um, and... Another thing that I think about is when I approach this film, this was released at a time when slashers were kind of like the superhero movies today. It's like everybody's got one. Everybody's doing it. They were all and always in the theaters somewhere. <laughs> Not in 2021. I get it. But you get my point. You know, look at the time frame that this came out and you, all the movies I've mentioned, plus other movies like Happy Birthday to Me, Final Exam, Graduation Day. But the burning has stood the test of time. And that's something that I like to, I think about a lot. This is, it, the film became a cult favorite. Like I said, even Shout Factory released it as part of their Scream Factory line. And a lot of people that are, you know, a lot of horror fans like to, to go back and talk about this film and watch this film and whatnot. It's a good summertime campground killer gets revenge for past wronging kind of film. With gorgeous special effects, keep it gory, keep it fun. And, you know, especially, like I said, at the time that I'm reviewing this, you know, campgrounds are starting to open up around the world. This is a great time to talk about this movie. Um, and, I mean, I'm not the only one talking about it. it Scott Weinberg of FearNet. Now, here's the thing. So certain critics, I kind of have a hard time distinguishing whether they like this movie or not. He felt that the movie was dated and dull, but then when he reviewed the Blu-ray of it, he said it had amazing gore and it felt new and fresh. So it's like, okay, dude, what side are you on? But I get what he's saying. Like, yes, when you watch this film, it does feel very 1980-ish, like the the fashions and everything like that, um, the look of the film and whatnot. Yeah, it looks very, you know, 19. 80 ish, but I will also agree with him that the Blu ray release for this is fucking gorgeous. Um, they did a very good job restoring a lot of the film footage and whatnot. Um, and then the other thing that I noticed that a lot of critics focused on was specifically Tom Savini's special effects. Kim Newman of Empire Magazine was extremely critical of the film, calling it an obvious imitation of Friday the 13th, but said that the best thing about it was Tom Savini's uncensored special effects. There's that thing that I was saying about where people said it was an imitation of Friday the 13th. Sometimes when I hear that and then I think about what the Weinsteins and Tom Savini said about the fact that, you know, this movie was not an imitation but was actually created beforehand. I don't know if that's necessarily true or not. I And uh, for the life of me, I'm trying to think of what the other movie was. There was another movie and it's just not coming to me. And watch, those of you listening are probably going, I know a movie you're thinking of. But there was a movie that came out. And it came out after a movie that had the similar storyline, and yet they said it was created beforehand, and it's just not coming to me. But sometimes I think 
creators just say that so that they don't get called rip-off artists and whatnot. But, I mean, it is what it is. Here's the interesting thing. So, Rotten Tomatoes has the movie at an 80% approval rating from critics. The audience approval rating is lower, though, by 20 points. It's a 60% approval rating. That's still good, though, considering. Um, especially if if a lot of people are getting turned on to this movie now and didn't grow up with it in the 80s. Yeah, I, it goes back to what Scott Weinberg said. The movie does seem dated and dull. On IMDb, about the same. It's 6.4 out of 10. However, 7 is the most common rating. It's 24.8% of the votes. Now for the Podcast Zero rating. So, I tried to sum this up really quickly and so that I don't repeat myself overly too much. The film, is it original? No, not really, but it still stands out on its own. Um, probably, and, and I highlight this a lot, Jason Alexander, seeing him with a full head of hair and he's doing something that's not George Costanza. Um, but yet at the same time, his deliverance of his lines and whatnot is very Jason Alexander, but it feels different. It feels fun. And that definitely makes the movie interesting to watch and whatnot. Uh, the effects make it feel very different from other films in terms of their creativeness. But again, still not a, not a completely original film. Smack dab in the middle of the slasher revolution, if you want to call it that. The acting isn't bad. At times, it feels very natural, um, almost like you think that some of, some of the um, interactions between the actors, you almost think that these you can believe that they were friends for years, even though they probably just met on set. Um, the movie is quick paced. Never feels like it's overstaying its welcome. The score by Rick Wakeman is solid and definitely does what it's supposed to for the film. Yes, as I stated earlier, there is controversy that occurred behind the scenes. I don't want to discredit this film and all the hard work that came from all the good people in this film because of said shit that happened, specifically with the Weinsteins. Um... It's a fun, quirky little film. It's great for a Saturday matinee or maybe a late Friday night with some friends sitting around and having some drinks. Maybe you throw it on a projector outside around a campfire. Who knows? Anyways, the award that goes to this movie, the rating. God damn it, give me that Scream Factory Blu-ray. It's a Blu-ray rating. It is not perfect, and I wouldn't feel the need to own it on all formats, but I would definitely get that collector's edition Blu-ray. Is definitely, let's say it's about a solid A minus. It's 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 fun. It's decent. Um, it stands out on its own. It's, it's another film to Savini's resume that shows that the man knew how to do special effects, and there's a reason why he's a revered name in the horror genre these days. I got to also give thanks to Jacob for requesting this because it gave me a, not only, not that I need a reason to review this movie because I probably still would have done it anyways, but knowing that I'm doing it for someone who wanted to hear about this movie makes it all the more better. So thank you, Jacob, for that. And on that note, Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in again this week. And like I said earlier, thank you to everyone 
from all different parts of the world that are listening to this show means a lot to me. Um, it kind of like blows my mind a little bit because I really didn't think my audience went further than like, you know, the few friends that are in, you know, close neighborhoods to me and seeing that all of a sudden it was like this show has an audience in Spain and the UK really like kind of made me happy. So thank you for tuning in to those of you who tune in every time I drop an episode. It means a lot to me. It means you also know where to find the show, but for those of you who, you know, maybe don't, maybe this is your first time hearing an episode that someone has just, you know, shown you and whatnot, you can definitely find it anywhere pretty much that streams podcasts, whether it be Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, FM Player, Audible, the list goes on. The show is everywhere. It's also at the nextlevelnetwork.com slash podcast zero or what lurks behind podcastzero.com. Social media, <laughs> my favorite thing in the world. Um, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, that's about as far as that will go, by the way. I know that there's a new slasher app and there, I, I, I have an account for horror or Amino, but I don't really use it. Uh, Vero, same thing, have an account, don't really use it. Um, if you want to find the show, the three best places to go to are Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Facebook.com slash what lurks behind podcast zero, Instagram at what lurks behind podcast zero, and Twitter at WLB podcast zero. Lurker's recommendation for this week. I gotta do it. I gotta say it. You know, Love, Death, and Robots, Volume 2. Give it a chance if you haven't already, and please try to do what i was saying don't go in with expectations just watch it let the stories tell you what they're going to tell and make your judgments based on that because i really do find that a lot of the criticisms i've seen to these eight episodes or these eight stories is that it didn't live up to season one well season one or volume one was its own thing let this be its own thing so it's the best i can offer um I am aware that Castlevania Season 4 has also been released. I haven't gotten to it yet. Uh, it's probably going to be viewed within the next one to two days. So I more than likely will have a little bit of a review about that next episode. But until then, for now, let's stick with Love, Death, and Robots. I'm going to close out this week with... I felt it was appropriate... May 17th being Trent Reznor's birthday and all. We're going to close out with a Nine Inch Nails live track. And I'm closing out with The Perfect Drug live because it's not a song they performed often. And yet there is a version of it floating around in the interwebs. That sounds really fucking awesome. So I decided that was the song I was going to close out with. So thank you for tuning in. And we'll close out with Nine Inch Nails again. Love, Death, and Robots, Volume 2. Check it out. Check out The Burning if you haven't. <laughs> Which, if you haven't, and I've spoiled so much shit for you, I'm sorry. Not sorry. But um, thanks again to Jacob. I think I've covered everything. It's a fucking cut. You need to shut the fuck up. My head, but my head is so rambling. 
can't keep control, can't keep track of where it's traveling. I got my hound, but my hound's no good. You're the only one that's understood. I come along, but I don't know where you're taking me. I shouldn't go, but you're reaching back and shaking me. Pull up the sun, pull the stars from the sky. The more I give to you, the more I die. And I want you.
without you Without you everything falls apart Without you It's not as much fun to pick up the pieces Without you Without you everything falls apart Without you It's not as much fun It's not as much fun It's not as much fun to pick up the pieces